0: Yeah, well, if you're going to meet someone live, you should have good, clean breath, fresh breath. Absolutely. Hey, everyone, it's uh, it's David Barnett. Uh, we're live, and tonight uh, I've got uh, author John Warlow, who's uh, who's joining me to talk about uh, built to sell, and we're going to be talking about businesses, and we're going to be talking about creating value in businesses, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And while as people filter in here, I'm just going to play the intro. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll start talking to John. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the broadcast, podcast, YouTube channel, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things. I talk to interesting people and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like, be sure to hit subscribe and let's get to it. Awesome. So John, whereabouts in the world are you located? I'm in Toronto. You're in Toronto, okay. So I think the first question that I'll have to ask is who will be the prime minister after the end of the night?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's a
0: a hot topic.
1: (laughs) I know who I don't want it to be. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I can guess that we may have the same opinion on
0: said person. My my phone's been buzzing all day with, with messages reminding me to get out and vote and all that kind yeah. of stuff.
1: And I got out at lunchtime, so it's good.
0: <laughs> John, um, you know, let welcome to the show, first of all. And thanks. and uh, thanks for doing this live cast with me. I I really enjoy having people on live because uh, the people get to tune in and and participate and and share comments and whatnot and i think that one of the best things to do to get started would just be to to get into a little bit about your background i first came across your stuff i read uh, built cell at one point back when it was i don't know if it was new or, or just a couple years old but i read that book and I really liked it, you want, because I felt a special connection with it. You see, I spent seven years as a yellow page advertising sales rep. Ah, oh, wow. And and that was one of the key examples uh, that you used in the book. Yeah. And um, and so why don't you you share a little bit about your background and how you got uh, to the point where you you felt you needed to write that book, built to sell.
1: Yeah, it probably goes back to. A conversation I had with a guy named Perry Miele, Toronto based M&A professional, I was running at the time a quantitative market research business, we did big studies for big global brands, and each one was a one off project. And we built it up to five or 6 million in revenue, uh, you know, 23% profit margin. So it, it, it felt mm-hmm. like a pretty, you know, Good business. I thought it was going to be a great, valuable company. And everybody had told me, look, John, you know, someone's going to buy this for your client list, right? Because you got Microsoft, IBM, these are great clients. So I go see Perry and I say, you know, what do you think it's worth? I'm kind of rubbing my hands together. And and he kind of looked at me across the room from his oh, his, you know, had his glasses perched down on his nose. And he said, like, depends on the answer to a couple of questions. I said, shoot. He said, Okay, well, who does the research? And I'm like, Well, I'm involved in some of these are big brands. These are micro, you know, okay, who does the selling? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm involved in some of the selling too. And he's like, okay, well, I can't sell your company. It's worthless. And, you know, I walked into his office, you know, with stars in my eyes. It was a $5 million company, you know, 23% profit margin these great clients and left realizing I had sort of made all the mistakes there were to make in trying to build a valuable company. And I, uh, you know, I felt about this tall, about an inch tall in leaving his office. But I, I did commit to really trying to change the business to make it more valuable, which we did. Got me out of doing the selling. We implemented a subscription model. Uh, ultimately, it was acquired by a public company, so it had a sort of a happy ending to the story. But it was. Uh, it was sort of my indoctrination to the world of building uh, a valuable company as opposed to just building a profitable company or a big company, uh, which are what I was chasing before, as opposed to what I think now about a lot.
0: Yeah. I, and, and I find, uh, I meet a lot of people who, who think that it's about the top line revenue. You know, they want to, uh, and, and a lot of the times it's these arbitrary lines, right? I want to cross a million dollars of revenue. Then, then they want to cross five million, and then ten million, etc. Mm-hmm. And really, it's it's all about what ends up on the bottom line. And do do you as the owner need to be there to put your hands on every file or every piece of work to make that come through? Right. Exactly all right. Yeah. So, what what year did Built to Sell come out?
1: 2011.
0: Okay. And, and so what was the, what was the feedback when people started to realize that they needed to, and for, and for those who haven't read it, maybe we could just summarize quickly. It's it's basically that story you just told, think about how you can bring in sort of systems and processes into a business so that the owner doesn't have to be involved in everything. What was the reaction uh, from the book from the public?
1: Yeah, it was good. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the original book was self-published, which is a bit of an afterthought, uh, uh, a footnote, if you will, in the story. It uh, it got the attention of a guy named Bo Burlingham, who is quite a well-known guy, an entrepreneur circus, wrote a number of books, Small Giants being his most famous. And he read it and he said, like, other people need to read this. It, it reminds me of an updated version of The E-Myth by Michael Gerber was his comment, and which is flattering because Michael Gerber's book is like the, the Bible when it comes to small, you know, yeah. running a small business. So it was very flattering to be compared in the same voice. But he said, "Look, you, you got to get this published by a mainstream publisher." And so, it uh, he generously introduced me to his agent, and his agent sold it to Random House, which is a big big New York publisher, and and sort of that gave it a big push to the mainstream. And it's been great. It's I, I think look, the 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 kind of main message about Built to Sell is not about how do you sell a company. In fact, when I do, you know, I'll do a speech to a group of business owners and not for fun, I'll say, okay, how many, you know, in the, in the first few minutes of the speech, I'll say, how many of you guys want to sell your company, right? And like nobody's hand goes in the air. Maybe one brave soul's hand goes in the air. And then I'll, I'll ask a different question. I'll say, okay, how many of you guys would like to know you could sell your business if and when you're ready? And like virtually every hand goes in the air. I, I think we all... Would like to know that we're building a valuable asset. You know, it's funny. Uh, just this weekend, my wife said that uh, a house across the street from us is going up for sale. So, what do you think the first question I asked for? Yeah,
0: well, what are they asking? What are they asking, right? Yeah. Does,
1: does that mean I want to sell my house? No, it means that I want to know that the value of my home is going up and lockstep with the rest of the houses on the street. Same thing is true for building a company. I think. You, you want to be focused on building the value of your business. That doesn't mean you want to sell it. It means that you are building an asset that you could sell one day. And that's really what the, you know, everything that we do is really
0: focused on that kind of premise. Well, you know, I, uh, whenever I speak to, to business owners and I start talking to them about this stuff, about you know selling your business and being ready to sell and everything, um, a lot of them have this idea that they can get their business ready to sell when they decide that they want to sell and mm-hmm. what i like to point out to people is that if you get your business into a sellable state today what you end up with is a business that is far more enjoyable to operate usually more profitable usually you find other difficulties and problems that are going on in your business and then you you set yourself up for having a much more enjoyable profitable better work life balance etc from now until the time that you end up wanting to sell and you know i've you know in my business broker days um, I've worked with a lot of people on helping to get their their small business in a better state. And when they start to get organized, they start to put some systems in place and they start to be able to delegate some responsibilities to other people and then have systems for accountability and everything. Uh, an amazing thing happened to quite a few of them is they decided they didn't need to sell because yeah. they actually started to get a taste of of what it would be like to own the business that they dreamed about back years earlier when they were getting underway. They just didn't know how to let go as as well as they needed to.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a, I think a pretty common sentiment among a lot of business owners that that it it becomes a lot more enjoyable when you put the you know the processes in play. We talk a lot about standard operating procedures, but basically instructions for your employees to follow. I'm reminded of a woman named Jody Cook who I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio. She built a a great marketing services business. They were they fo- focused on social media, and she built it was like J.C. Social Media. It was like her initials in the beginning, so it was very dependent on her at the beginning. But she was committed to trying to build it so that it wasn't dependent on her. And and she created these standard operating procedures for her employees to follow and and real process for everything that she did, you know, how how to make an Instagram video, how to do a tweet for a client, et cetera. And, And when I asked her, I said, Jody, that must have been, you know, she's a very entrepreneurial woman, you know writing processes is like an antithesis for most entrepreneurs, right? Like it's the opposite of what you want to be doing. You want to be creating, you want to be doing things, selling things. And and here here she was like writing all these, these processes out in painstaking detail. I said, that must have been horrific for you. And, and she said, yeah, but I mean, if you have to go to prison, would you rather go to prison for three months or three years? <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll bite. I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, look, if I didn't create, the standard operating procedures. When I went to sell, I would have had to succumb to an earnout. I would have had, you know, being, you know, I would have put most of my value at risk in a three or five year earnout. In 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 the end of her story, she did actually sell her agency, and she left two weeks after, which is, as you know, given all that you know about this space, virtually unheard of in the marketing services world. Almost always, there's an earnout because the assets, as Ogilvy said, kind of go up and down the elevator every night. And so, it's, uh, in her case, she left two weeks after selling. So, um, you know, it's an amazing story, but it's, it really reinforces the importance of standard operating procedures.
0: Yeah. And so, so you ended up turning this whole idea into a, another different business for yourself, right? The, you created the value builder system.
1: Yeah, it's a practice management software for business advisors to help them win the best clients. And so we licensed that to MA professionals, business coaches. And it came about in a funny sort of way. I, I wrote Built to Sell. I had sold uh, my last company. i have been involved in four businesses that i built and exited. So I felt like I, I wanted to share some of the things I'd learned. And I put this book together and I bought the URL builttosell.com hmm. and try to figure out what to put on the URL, or like how to sell books and And I got the idea of putting a little assessment questionnaire together, like 10 questions that would evaluate how sellable your company is. And I did it. I put that together. And so you can go to build sell at the time. You can't anymore, but you could at the time go to build sell, and it would give you these 10 questions and you get an answer. Well, about a month after I put it online, I started to get questions, calls from mostly business brokers, but some consultants and coaches saying, hey, we noticed that questionnaire on your website, you know, can I use that? Uh, Can we license that? Can I borrow that? You know, like all these questions. And I was sort of between companies at the time. And I thought, you know, there seems to be a real need out there for tools for advisors who want to start this conversation about exit with their clients. And so effectively, that was the very early beginnings of what has become the value builder system, which is a whole platform for advisors to use.
0: Okay, and and so and the, the the people who are using this, they're typically talking to business owners about what size we're talking. Like yeah, mostly it's lower middle market.
1: Yeah, it's you. The sweet spot is companies with between one and ten million in annual revenue. Okay, so that would equate to you know roughly a hundred thousand dollars in in EBITDA to maybe maybe on the top end a million dollars of EBITDA.
0: Okay, and so these what what is it then that 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 uh, the software is helping people, helping the advisors show business owners where they can make the improvements, or maybe w- like sort of a uh, benchmarking or yardstick to compare their business with others. Is that it?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, the advisors who use get a bunch of different tools. The, the probably the most above the you know top of the iceberg, so to speak, is there are three benchmarking assessments we offer. We have one is called the value builder score, which is assesses mm-hmm. your business on eight value drivers that are important to acquirers. Uh, the second is called pre-score, which evaluates your personal readiness to exit your business, the psychological readiness. Mm-hmm. And then the third is called freedom score, which measures your financial readiness to exit your company. So collectively those three uh, questionnaires are offered by advisors. Mm-hmm. And part of the way business owners start to work with an advisor is the first meeting oftentimes is, is a, a sort of a download or debrief on how they performed on one of those three benchmarking questionnaires.
0: It's, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of the criticisms that you hear in the, in the world of buying and selling businesses uh, relate to things like, you know, oh, someone wants a million dollars for their business because that's how much they need to retire, you know, to, right. to get to the, the point of your third questionnaire there, right? You know, how ready are they financially? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the, the psychological aspect, you know, being ready to pull the trigger. Um, I know that in my own practice, uh, back when I had my business brokerage office open, um, there were many people who would come in and and I knew that they didn't want to sell. They were just coming to see me because they were trying to, Relief pressure from some family pressure. You know, they've had, mm. they had spouses and children who were saying, you know, when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? And I began to realize that people would take my initial brochure package folder thing, and you know, come in, meet with me, leave with it, and then they would take that home and set it somewhere where everyone could see it, so to kind of buy themselves some time. You know, so that isn't <laughs> that funny. Yeah, because they they weren't interested. Get off my back. <laughs> they, they wanted to. They they. And a lot of this had to do with like personal identity, right? They identified their persona was the, as the operator owner of that certain business. Yeah. And, and so, you know, tell me about some of the the most common things that come up in this. Is it, is it mostly the entrepreneur that needs to work on themselves to get ready? Or is it mostly the problems with the business or are they (laughs) the two just so interrelated? It's hard to, to separate them.
1: No, I mean you you often find really valuable companies that are highly sellable, run by owners who are hopelessly unprepared to sell. (laughs) And you often get owners in in contrast who are really ready to sell. They've got everything ready to go psychologically. They they want nothing more to do with their company, yet their business is completely unsellable. So no, they're not, they don't necessarily work hand in glove. I think you know, pre-score is maybe one of the most interesting places to focus because. It's really where you separate and you identify how psychologically ready are you to exit. It's, it's based on a number of different kind of factors. One of the factors is what we refer to as pull versus push factors. So what we found is that when a business owner has more pull factors than push, they end up having a better exit. What do I mean by push versus pull? pull factors are things you're excited to go do next. Mm. You want to run a marathon, you want to write a book, you want to travel to Spain, whatever it is, is a pull factor. A push factor is a frustration, red tape, employees, uh, etc. And for a lot of business owners, they come to Brokers in particular, and maybe David, in your case, this happened where they're all push, right? They want to get out because there's a new competitor in town, or they you know, their gross margins getting eaten by Amazon, or you know, the, the kids are barking at me all the time, and they want to get out, and yet that's almost always a recipe for a regret uh, after the sale, because they'll sit back, they'll be sipping lemonade on the on the pa- on the porch rocking in their rocking chair, and they will all of a sudden wonder, did I leave money on the table? Like, did I sell my business for everything that I possibly could sell it for? And it leads to this sort of sequence of regrets. They lose their identity in the process, and and it's just all a a sort of a spaghetti ball or a a snowball of, of, of problems. Whereas if
0: you've got the of buyers' remorse. It's it's like a seller's remorse. It's
1: seller's remorse, and it yeah. it's a real thing. It's a real thing. I interviewed a guy named Bobby Martin early in Built to Sell Radio, first year of Built to Sell Radio, and he described the sale of First Research. First Research was uh, in the business of of sales research. Uh, built it up to around six six and a half million dollars in revenue. Got an offer from Dun and Bradstreet for twenty six point two million dollars. This is for a $6 million company. Like it's almost unheard of. It was, cra- I mean, he had some technology, some subscribers. So, it, you know, there there were some benefits to it. But I mean, it was a crazy multiple to which Bobby just said, where do I sign? Right? Like this is, this is a, you know, he's a young guy at the time and an incredible opportunity. The challenge was he had built first research as he described it to me as is kind of like a frat house. Maybe I can't remember if you used that exact words, but it it had that sort of very collegial feel to it, right? Employees were friends, they barbecued together, everybody was sort of in it together. And Bobby signs the check, and all of a sudden those relationships cool. And and he went through. A period of very, very deep depression he he became estranged from his wife. He had three kids. I mean it was a very serious incident where he lost his identity, some of the relationships that he had. Uh, now he's come out of it and and built another great company. He wrote a book uh, what's the, uh, the hockey Stick principles, I think is the name of his book, but okay. he describes some of the stuff in that book. Um, but my long story short is, is he didn't do some of the, th- the planning that you need to do to make sure that you don't end up regretting your decision. And one of the things you can do is figure out your pull factors. So get really clear about what you want to go do next. Um, uh, remind another built to sell radio guest, uh, Sean Oshman, he had a little it services company. I think it was a couple million in revenue, probably hundred or 200 grand in profitability. He woke up on his 39th birthday and said, I'm done. I don't want to live in Denver anymore. At the time, he lived in landlocked Denver. And he said, I actually want to live on a sailboat. And here he is a thousand miles from an ocean. He wants to live on a sailboat. So he goes, he says, by my 40th birthday, I want to live on a sailboat. So he goes to a broker in Denver and says, Look, I, you know, I want out. Broker says, All right, well, I could probably get you two, you know, two to three times SDE seller's discretionary earnings. Yeah. Sean says, okay, where do I sign? Broker goes away, comes back with two or three offers. They're all in the range of two to three, sells this company. And I interviewed him after this. And I said to him, but Sean, like two to three times SDE, I mean, it's it's not life-changing money, right? Like it's a couple years profit. You could have held the business and you could have got that money. And he says, yeah, but Sean, you're missing the point. I'm like, okay, what's the point? Enlightenment. And he said, I live on a sailboat. Yeah. And that was his point. It was, wasn't necessarily about eking out every last dollar from the deal. He had a very clear vision of where he wanted to go. He wanted to live on a boat. And he did that. He took his fiance and they went and lived on a boat. And for him, it was a great exit, not because he got every last dollar of value, but because he had a really compelling pull factor. And again, that's just one of the five
0: things that make up your pre-score, but um,
1: it's an important thing to think through
0: well you know i've i've had a lot of conversations with business owners about what their business is worth and and the most common response is just what you said well if i just kept it for the next two or three years i could have that money and still own it yeah and so it's it's never about cashing out for it for businesses in this league it's it's about those pressing personal motivations and you know, actually, the number one in my list of five that I see the most often, number one is burnout, boredom, and fatigue. Which yeah, is probably exactly the case of of what he was feeling there in Denver.
1: I well, and doubly so.
0: Air, you know? What's that, David? He was missing the salt air.
1: Yeah, maybe. You know, doubly so right now. You know, we're recording this in Canada where hopefully we're on the other side of this pandemic different parts of the world it's it's still raging obviously and certainly in Canada we still have it but but the covid pandemic has been um really crushing for service businesses in particular uh, anyone who has a human relationship with their the way they deliver their service you know massage therapists restaurants anything like that obviously has has been crushed And we've done some research. So one of the questionnaires I mentioned of the three value builder, we have people complete it when they start, you you know, start business, start doing business with a a value builder advisor. And we compared their responses to the questionnaire pre-COVID to the eight months during COVID that we looked at. Now, again, I say that mindful it's not over, but the pre and during. And one of the most interesting findings is that business owners have moved forward their sell by date by 20%. This is over tens of thousands of users. They've moved up their sell-by date by 20%. The other interesting thing, and again, this goes back to a point we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, is we asked them, how are you planning to exit? Are you going to do a management buyout? Are you going to sell to a private equity group, sell to a strategic, uh, give it to your kids, et cetera? The proportion of people who said, I want to give it to my kids has dropped from, if memory serves, around 17% prior to COVID to less than 10% today. Almost in half. And again, our inter- it's a quantitative study. So I, don't, I can't necessarily tell you for sure, but I can infer that the crisis that the pandemic has brought on business owners has led them to A, want to sell sooner, B, not want to give that albatross and put it around the neck of their kids. They want to sell it to a third party for the highest price possible and leave. Hmm. And that's what COVID has done. It's a mentality of a lot of business owners.
0: I, I I think this is happening across all segments of society, even yeah. amongst employed people, because uh, I don't know if you've been following the, uh, there's a hashtag, the great resignation. I right? have. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, so ev- even amongst uh, employees, you know, they're realizing, hey, uh, life is limited. We have a, a finite amount of time. We want to live it the way we want. And yep. people want to move forward. They don't want to it's 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 funny because, uh, you know, we all know that we have limited time, but when people keep waiting to do something they enjoy till sometime in the future, you're living as though you have unlimited time. And I think that this pandemic has really reminded people that, yeah, there's a limited amount of time. you got to get the most out of life and you don't want to spend it doing things you don't enjoy.
1: It's one of the reasons I, I love this topic because I think it's such an important thing for folks to hear. It's one of the things we just put together a white paper called The Freedom Point Point. It's an ebook and it is right down the strike zone of what you're talking about. It it talks about the point at which the sale of your company, after you pay your broker and your tax, Mm -hmm. you have enough liquid wealth to live comfortably for the rest of your life. And I think that is a point at which you should buy a really good bottle of wine. You should go to a little cabin in the woods and think hard about whether you want to sell your company. Because if you think about why you got into business for the first place, most of some of us want to, you know, some people want to be the next Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, whatever, but most people got into business for themselves for freedom. Yeah, for financial freedom, but also for the freedom to decide when to work, who to work for, what to do, et cetera. And when you reach the freedom point where the liquid wealth that you've created after selling your business would generate enough money to live for the rest of your life, I think it's at least worth asking the question, do I want to risk something I don't necessarily aspire to have another zero in the bank account for what I desperately crave, which is freedom? Warren Buffett uh, said in one of his annual meetings, he said, it's crazy to me, people who risk what they want for something they do not want. Right. Mm. So if you've reached financial freedom, that's an aspiration for so many people. Why would you risk it to open the next door, to hire the next employee, to hit the next threshold of of revenue? Um, I, I think it's at least asking yourself the question is it worth it? Do I want that? And if you do, great. But if you don't, um, you know, one of the guys I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio is a guy named Rand Fishkin. Have you ever had him on the show? No. He wrote a great book called Lost and Founder. Certainly encourage people to pick it up. He built a business called Moz, which is in the SEO business. It's a software business. They do SEO ranking and so forth, search engine optimization. And he built it up to $5 million in revenue. And this is a software company. And in his mind, his advisors were telling him that, man, this is going to be worth a truckload one day. It could be worth four times top line revenue. So that's a number that's kind of rattling around in his brain when he gets a call from Brian Halligan. Halligan at the time was the co-founder of HubSpot, is the co-founder of HubSpot. HubSpot is like an all-in-one marketing platform. Yeah. And, and Halligan says, okay, I want to buy your business. I'll pay you $25 million of cash in HubSpot stock. And so Rand thinks about it. He says, okay, well, that's that's five times my five, but but I'm I'm pretty sure we're gonna get to 10. I'm pretty sure we're gonna get to $10 million in revenue. And when we do, my business is gonna be worth 40. So no, Mr. Halligan, I'm not happy with your $25 million. I want 40 Halligan walks away. Rand instead raises some VC funding. They use something called preferred shares, which you would know about, David, but for some of your listeners, they might not know where you get a preferred return and a guaranteed return in some cases before the founder shareholder gets anything. That's important to the story because as the VCs invested, they invested in all different product lines, none of which they were really set up to compete in. The businesses started to bleed cash. Rand suffered a period of depression. He was removed for as the CEO of the company. And I interviewed him on Built to Sell Radio after the fact. I said, Rand, I mean, at least you've got your shares in Moz. I mean, that must be worth a truckload, right? And he said, actually, John, they're probably not worth anything. I said, what do you mean not worth anything? He said, well, based on the preferred shares and the length of time the VCs have held it, they will probably get paid out entirely. But I don't think my founder shares will be worth anything. Yeah. And I said, Rand, what would that Offer from HubSpot been worth based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock, and he said it would be worth close to two hundred million dollars.
0: Yeah, That's, you know,
1: when you reach the freedom point, it's worth asking the question.
0: <laughs> it's you know, there's there's a lot of uh, noise on the internet. You know, a lot of very loud, fast talking yeah. people who talk about how you have to play to win and all this kind of thing. At a, at a certain point, you need to realize when you have to make moves not to lose, That's uh,
1: right.
0: what you've already achieved. And, um, you know, I, I, I frequently talk to people that have, uh, gotten an offer for their business and they, mm-hmm. they want a second opinion. And so they'll reach out to me and they'll say, this is what's going on. And I'll ask them some questions about the business. And I, I see that all the time where people are thinking, like, can I squeeze an extra 10 or 15% more out of this? And, and I'll remind them, just how difficult it is to sell a privately owned business. And I'll, I'll say to them, like, you got an offer, you got an unsolicited offer for your business, someone's willing to pay money for what you have. It's almost as though you've won the lottery and now you have to try to win it again to pay out now, like th- this. And I think the reason that, you know, people get approached to sell and then they have this belief that there must be this whole group of of prospective buyers out there, that they've got this super attractive golden goose that everybody wants. And it it can actually lead to the business owner's ego expanding a little bit, which can lead to some of the things like you just described, where he says, you know what, 25, you know, if I just make these changes, I'll get 40, you know, kind of thing yeah and it's it's what a what a tragedy, you know, for that fella to to have things end up that way.
1: yeah. and you know all you need is, I believe, two competitors. And and every one of us has a second competitor for our business. So if you get an offer, what I would tell you is that there's actually a competition going on. You've got two bidders for your business already. And that and again what you need as an owner I think is some competition to make sure that the deal terms that you agree to stick through due diligence, right? So you want some competition. And you're saying, "Well, who's the other buyer if I've got one offer? What's who's the other buyer?" The buyer is you. Yeah. In other words, every day you hold on to your company, you are effectively saying, I would like to go all in, own these shares, and not choose to offer. The second thing I would tell you is is the story of the guys who sold Barefoot Winery. Do you know um, the Houlihan, uh, uh, Bonnie and H- uh, Henry, I think is is the guy's surname, but someone could correct me on the internet. I heard
0: the story. Didn't he start in Hawaii? No,
1: they started in, in California. Uh, I believe it, it was okay. in California. They started Barefoot Winery. Uh, kind of a, uh, a sort of he- uh, easy drinking table wine, not a fancy wine. They sold it through Trader Joe's primarily in the United States, mm-hmm. and and got tremendous you know traction. You know, one of the largest independent wine makers in the United States. Uh, they decided they wanted to sell it, and they s- decided that the natural buyer would be E and J Gallo, right? The the largest wine maker in the United States and and i said okay so what how did you how did you go about approaching them and he said well here's what i did i put together our pre-diligence package and what's pre-diligence and he described it to me as like everything they're going to ask for in due diligence i did in advance so all my distributor contracts my sales contracts my employee contracts like everything in neat binders in the old days they were physical binders right and, and I said, why did you go through all that? I mean, if, if they made an offer, weren't you incumbent to do that after the fact? Like, Why would you do that in advance? And he said, here's why. Number one, I knew it would make the deal go more smoothly. But the other reason is that when I went to E&J Gallo, I knew I had one shot for them to take us seriously. They were the most natural strategic choir for our business and probably the ones who would pay the most. I wanted to look so ready for the dance that they would draw the conclusion whether they articulated it to me or not they would draw the conclusion that if i didn't sell to them i was going to the next closest competitor mm-hmm. and i would sell to them and ian j gallo by seeing how prepared they were drew the conclusion that okay these guys are these guys are going to sell their business if it's not to us they're going to sell to somebody else and so going through that pre-diligence process effectively gave the illusion of competition, made sure and J Gallo knew they were competing for the business without having to, you know, shove it in their face or be egotistical to your point. You can, you can look way too uh, egotistical. Your ego gets out of control. You don't want to do that because a lot of acquirers will just walk away and say like, I don't want to work with this person, but there are subtle things you can do to communicate that there are competitors, even though there may not be just yet.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And um, if anyone watching wants to pop a, a comment or a question into the uh, into the chat window, we can get uh, we can answer ask some questions of John here too as we as we move along. Um, so one of the um, one of the you know ideas that I had in inviting you on is that I work with a lot of people who are looking at getting out of a job they don't like, or they own a business they're looking to grow through acquisition, and if they aim at businesses that are a little bit too big. With the low interest rates and the reduced yields from the public markets, what's happening is venture capitalists are getting into smaller and smaller sized businesses. And so a lot of individual buyers find that if they aim for something a little bit too big, they have to compete with these guys that have a lot of money. And so a common strategy that's coming about is you look for something that's a little bit smaller that you feel that you can grow. And so with the idea being they eventually grow that business up into the the size where venture capitalists and and these other people might be interested in acquiring it or strategic acquisitions like you just described here with the wine story. So if somebody was buying a business and they had a 10 year horizon, let's say, and they wanted to grow, thinking about sort of the examples and the people you've talked to, what are some of the things that people really need to make a part of their plan in order to make sure that they they lay the right foundation as they're growing to to try to build something that has the best value
1: yeah look so what you're describing obviously is someone who, who is 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 effectively building the value of their company it's a it's a flip idea so you sell you buy it for one and you hope to sell it for three down the road as an example i think i would look for a transaction business model that could be converted into a recurring revenue business model. Mm-hmm. So look for an industry or a player inside an industry that is still using a transactional business model and ask yourself, could I flip that into a recurring revenue model? Why would you want to do that? Well, number one, a transaction business model trades at a, a fraction of a recurring business model. If you look at, for example, um, security companies, they trade the two types of revenue. They've got installation revenue, one and done transactional to install the sensors in the system. And then they've got the recurring or monthly monitoring revenue, right? Typical acquire today will pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and about $3 for every dollar of monitoring revenue. So in another way your transactional revenue is worth about a quarter of your recurring revenue. It's a huge, a huge value booster. And so I'd be looking at at any industry where they're still clinging to a transaction business model, you can, you can pick it up for a really low multiple because there's their transaction business model in smaller space and with it, with a view to moving it. I mean, right now this is happening a lot in of all businesses, car washes. So in the car wash business, they, I have a friend in the car wash business. Yeah.
0: introduced this, the VIP club where you can get car washed as much as you want. Exactly.
1: It's all you can eat car wash. So basically the old days you got your tank of gas and you 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 bought an a la carte car wash, which is great. In April in Moncton, you can get all the snow and crap off your car and it's perfect, right? The problem wow, is that nobody's hard. buying a car wash in November on a rainy day in Moncton, right? Because yeah. it's just going to get dirty again. And so car washes had this real seasonality to their revenue. And of course we all buy a car wash when we're happen to be close to a gas station. And so sometimes it's the one down the street, sometimes it's a block down the road. And so there's no loyalty. And so the car wash guys are saying, guys and gals are saying, okay, if we could give a club where for 30 bucks a month, you can get your car washed as many times as you want. That gives us revenue every month, 12 months of the year. And it totally transforms the business. Now people say, oh, well, like I'm going to go underwater because Uber drivers are going to come in and get their car washed every day. Well, yeah, there may be one or two of those, but most people frankly have better things to do with their time than get their car washed, right? And yet you get that beautiful recurring revenue. And again, that makes your business more predictable, Ultimately, it makes it way more valuable. So you pick up a car wash for two times EBITDA and you sell it downstream for eight because you've got a recurring revenue model. I'm making those, those, those numbers up, by the way. Don't take those to the bank. But my point is, look for a transactional business that you can convert into a subscription business.
0: John, I just became a member of uh, Cineplex's new Cine Club. Oh, great. And you pay a monthly fee. And you get a movie ticket every month, which accumulates. If you don't go this month, it just accumulates. I can buy additional tickets for the same reduced rate. And um, I get a discount off of the concessions. And so when the when the offer came in the email, I, I quickly did the math in my head. I've got two children. And so if we just went to four movies a year we I would cut my cost. But what does it do for those guys? it gives them a regular recurring monthly revenue at a time when, boy, I bet you they really need the money Uh, with all of these, uh, you know, the problems with the lockdowns and everything that uh, they haven't been able to have regular attendance. You want to, uh, you want to look in the mailbag here and we'll see what people are saying. Yeah, for sure. Um, So we got a mic over at exit Oasis says great stuff, guys, John, what advice would you give to the owners of truly small businesses who want to build to sell what size threshold do you see as a critical as a critical threshold for being sellable?
1: Yeah, again, the thresholds are a little bit they, they they're drive by the the type of buyer. So very small businesses. So while I'll say very small. Uh, maybe we'll talk about businesses with less than one million in annual revenue. Those are diff- typically bought by individuals. Uh, to mm-hmm. your point, David, someone who's looking for a job, looking to to to, to for an investment opportunity. Um, that's the sort of front end or low end, so to speak. And then one to $10 million businesses, that's when you start to get kind of lower end private equity and, and also a few other companies looking to make acquisitions. And then north of, say, 10 or $20 million of value, you can start to get into some of these more strategic acquisitions. A lot of private equity companies play in that space as well. So it depends a little bit on who uh, your audience is. But I'm assuming by the nature of the question, it's the very sort of... L- "Quote unquote lower end of the business is less than yeah." I think in, he's in asking:
0: Europe. Is there is there a bare minimum? And um, you know, when I've been asked that question, I've always answered it this way and said the SDE has to be equal to or greater than the fair market value of that job. So if you're going to if you're, yeah. you're going to own if, if you want someone else to step into your shoes, they have to at least be able to put as much money in their pocket as if they went and got a job somewhere.
1: That's a now, great point. Yeah.
0: the question of how much they're willing to pay to earn the same amount as they could in a job. Well, you know, it may not be very much, but if the other things are there, the freedom, flexibility, etc then it, it may be, a mar- it, there may be a market for the business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I've never heard that before, but I think that's as good a benchmark as any that, uh, that you can use. So great, uh, great stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, and so, you know, John, since uh, since built to sell, you you've had some, another book come out. What's why don't you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, the auto, the automatic customer was the book that followed built to sell. It's about how do you create a recurring revenue in any industry. People who talk about uh you know recurring revenue. Oftentimes they hear SaaS company, right? Like Rand's business, they think of a software business. My goal with with the automatic customer was really to say no matter what industry you're in, whether you're retail, manufacture, distribution, you can create recurring revenue. I tell a story in the in the book about the story of H. Bloom, which is a flower company. Now flower stores, I'm sure it's the same in Moncton. I mean it's a crappy business, right? Like the the farmer cuts the the, the flower off the stem. It starts to die in your fridge. Uh, Typical flower store throws out 60% of its inventory, right? Uh, It's super, super seasonal, right? Mother's Day and Valentine's Day is when we buy flowers. Uh, Unless you forget your wedding anniversary, you don't really buy them any other time of the year, right? So, So you're left trying to stimulate demand. How do you do that? Well, you rent really expensive real estate on some high street, you know, high traffic corner. So you're paying a huge rent. Um, It's just a crappy business. So along comes these guys, Sonia Pan and Brian Burkhardt, and they say, we're going to sell flowers, but we're going to do it on subscription. And so they looked at all the reasons people buy flowers, again, graduation, funerals, weddings, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day. And they realized that there was this very small segment of the universe who buy flowers on a recurring basis, and they are five-star hotels. So if okay. you go to the Fairmont in downtown Moncton, my guess is they've got a fresh bouquet of flowers on their reception table. Why? Because they wanna give that sort of very prestigious image, right? Well, there's hotels like that all over the world. H Bloom sells a subscription to flowers. Every two weeks they come, they install a new bouquet of flowers to get rid of the old one. Typical spoilage rate at H Bloom is less than 2% sure. compared to a typical transaction flower store who sells out 60%. Lifetime value of an H Bloom subscriber is $4,500. Compare that with the average transaction in a flower store of around $65. You make one sale to a hotel and you capture $4,500 worth of revenue. That's a subscription model in an industry which is not known for subscriptions. So subscriptions aren't just for software companies. They are for virtually every type of company out there, even car washes and flower stores. And so that's what I I tried to cover in the automatic customer.
0: Listen, and, and you know, it's funny because you can tell this to people who are in business today. And, and so many of them are just so busy running the day to day that they won't stop and put some thought into this. Uh, years ago, I used to have some apartment buildings, some small three and four unit apartment buildings. And there was an outfit that uh, would do the snow removal in the wintertime and they would do the lawn care in the summertime. Right. And, you know, they wanted me to pay, give them like two post dated checks in the fall for snow removal and <laughs> give them two post dated checks in the spring for for right. the, the lawn. And I said, look, I said, why don't you just look at each building? work up a price, divide by 12, and let me pay you monthly. Yeah, I'll give you a credit card. You can take every month. seasonal services. Because I said, my cash flow is monthly. I collect rent on the first of the month. And I want to pay you on the second, right? And the same amount every month. And they said, yeah, that really makes sense. So they started this with me. A year and a half later, I ran into the guy. And I said, so how many of your customers have you got on the monthly plan? He's like, well, you're the only one who's asked. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, are you kidding me? Right. Like, you know, this, Here, this is something the, you could take advantage
1: of and you never Absolutely. It. And again, it, look, it makes your company infinitely more valuable, right? Mm. Infinitely more sellable. Because if you're an acquirer looking at this and you can look at this business and say, look, they've got 112 credit cards on file every single month. On the first day of the month, they've ding 112 credit cards. You as an acquirer looking at that saying, man, fantastic. Like I can just install myself and that that revenue stream annuity stream is just going to continue on so it makes it more valuable some people are saying but yeah yeah i don't want to sell great here's the magic of recurring revenue is it makes your business more predictable right at h bloom they only buy flowers for the number of subscribers they have So in a lawn care company, one of the things is like, how many trucks do I need? Well, I don't know how much demand I'm going to have in six months. So I don't know how many people I'm going to need cutting the lawns. So now all of a sudden you're guessing, right? You're guessing how many trucks you're trying to match demand with supply six months from now. It can be very challenging. Whereas if you've got customers on a monthly basis who are buying snow removal and lawn care. You can know I've got 112 and I need one truck for every 50 customers. Well, I need two trucks. I need two drivers. And you can recruit for those people now. I mean, it makes your business so much more predictable. So it's a it, I think it is such an, an underused but a critical element of building a valuable company.
0: Well, and and you know, just your point about waste, you know, I mean, this is why catering is a nicer business than the restaurant trade. Right. Because, if you know, you have to feed 100 people. Well, then you you just buy enough stuff to make those 100 meals. Right. That's right. We have have, um, a couple of questions that have come up. Um, uh, John's not a business broker, uh, Fred, um, but uh, curious to know about like commissions when people sell their business. I think it's interesting to talk to maybe mention how this changes as the size of businesses change. I know that when I had my brokerage office open. I used to charge 12% of business value and 6% of real estate value if I happened to sell property with the business. Um, maybe you can speak to that with some of the larger businesses. What have you seen out there?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So in a small business, what I would typically see is 10% of the first million in value, 8% of the second million, 6% of the third million, and so on. Those are for s- small businesses, uh, you know, generally a million or two, or two. So getting 12% is great. I think that's awesome. Uh, I think, uh, I've seen a lot of, of commissions that are around 10. Mm-hmm. As the business grows in size, you start to go from business brokers selling your company to you, you probably want to find a quality Main Street business broker, which is someone who sells businesses that are usually 1 to 10 million in value. And if you go all the way up to $10 million of value or more, you're really starting to get into the world of, of m and professionals, lower mid market MA professionals. And they typically have two fees. They have what's called a work fee, which is a non-refundable fee they Charge to prepare a business to sell. It could be, you know, depending on the complexity of the business, anywhere from fifty to one hundred thousand dollars. And generally, it's non-refundable, meaning they're using that as a way to test you. They don't want to, you know, you to put the business on the market and, and pull back if you're not interested or don't get the money or get cold feet. It's non-refundable. And then there'll be a success fee. And depending on the sophistication level of the M&A firm, that success fee could be, again, depending on the size of your business, 3%, 4%. I've seen some M&A professionals that won't do a deal for any less than $500,000 fee. So that would be 5% on a $10 million business. Again, you you may say, well, that's a lot of money. Remember, I think the role and job of a good M&A professional is to get some competitive tension for your company, right? To get that second and third offer. And if you do that, I think you'll find that two things happen. Number one, you'll make sure that you'll maximize the value of your company. It doesn't mean you're going to get a huge premium, but in many cases, you're going to get what your company is worth. And you'll know with confidence that you got what your company is worth because you got multiple offers. The second piece, though, I think is more... Compelling, and that is that your buyer will not retrade. Retrading is when, effectively, they lower the price they offered you at the LOI stage at the actual deal closing because they quote found something in due diligence. Now, sometimes they find something legitimate, but most of the time, retrading is illegitimate. It's just because they know they can, because they know that you're the only offer they're working or there there is the only offer you're working with, and so I think. Having an m and a professional make sure that you 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 get maximum value, you get a competitive market for your company. Number one, number two, you can make sure it sticks during due diligence, which I think is arguably the more important factor
0: and and you know the the biggest thing I can add to that is do your due diligence on whoever you choose to work with. absolutely. There's a huge you know, when you get into like larger M&A firms, you know, that are centered in the big cities, it's usually easy to find out their reputation, longevity of the firm, what other transactions they might have done. Those are usually the easier ones to do research on. In the world of of Main Street business brokerages, I I and I heard you use a word too, I, I say that there are qualified business brokers and then there are the rest. And it's yeah. really important if you have a business and you're going to work with a professional to make sure that you're actually working with... Somebody who who knows what they're doing, uh, because I honestly every day I'm I'm looking at files and paperworks and and Sims prepared by brokers who don't and yeah you know th- those business owners unfortunately are not being served very well um, in that process by not getting yeah, the help they should.
1: It's a shame, really, because y- you know you think about how long people train to become a chiropractor or even to become a car mechanic. There's all sorts of certifications you have to go through to to deal with these yet in the business brokering world, there is very little required certification Now, the IBBA offers some forms of certification that some people take, uh, that can give you a heightened degree of confidence. Um, but to your point, David, there is a broad range. So I, I, you know, I, I have lots of brokers that, that use, uh, you know, customers of value builder. So I have a, a huge degree of respect for what they do and the best are, irreplaceable. I I truly believe a great MIA professional is an incredible asset in the process. And a bad one can really be a huge liability. So there's just a huge range. So you want to do your, your diligence. You want to make sure you're working with someone who's great, really, really appreciates the, the uniqueness of your business. I love the question. Like, what do you, what do you think is our secret sauce or what do you think makes us unique? And, and I, what I, what I'm listening for from a broker is a broker who just spouts off the same statistics that he does or she does for every business in your industry. Okay. So you're, you're a retailer. I know your, your inventory turns are three. uh, And, and, you know, I know you've got uh, 4,000 square feet and so I can sell your business tomorrow. That's not what I want to hear. I want to hear what is it about my retail shop, my little bike shop in Moncton, New Brunswick, that is irresistible to a buyer? Like, what is it that Meeks makes our bike shop truly unique? Right? Is it because we offer great service, or we have a relationship with Schwinn, or we have a great race every year, and people have become to know us for that? I want my broker to know that and be able to spout and repeat that back mm-hmm. to me. I don't want to hear about retail turns and square footage. Cause that's just you lumping me in with every other retailer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's when, uh, when I got into it and, and, um, I had gone through the, the IBBA program, it was, it was great. This is one of the things I actually tell people to look for the CBI one. Yeah. P- look yeah, for great. people who've invested in themselves. Uh, yeah. cause it takes Huge. a couple of years to complete that program. Um, the, uh, the, the, the package that gets put together to represent a business should be compelling enough to get a buyer interested and excited enough and answer all of their most upfront questions to the point where they they realize that to make the next step, if they're not in the same city, they need to go and buy a plane ticket to go visit the business. And 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 it, I think that's one of the, the best ways to describe it because I've seen so many of these three page you know, memorandums that don't have any information and you're, you're, you're right. left wondering what, what they do at the business, you know? Yeah. The business and, and to I've,
1: give you a PL and L. Yeah. <laughs> and then I've, she- seen,
0: I've seen some exceptional ones, which are 25 pages that have photos yeah. and maps and information about the market and, you know, talk about all kinds of different things and the history of the business. And you're like, wow, like this is, there's a legacy here that might yeah. you might want to be a part of.
1: This reminds me of, of a really important point that I, I think your listeners would, would benefit from hearing. It goes back to a story from uh, years ago. I was invited uh, to a, a program at MIT, the famous college in Southside Boston, and it was at their executive education center. It was for a group of entrepreneurs. They called it the birthing of giants. If you think of a more pretentious name, I'll <laughs> challenge you to do that. The birthing of giants. You had to have a million dollars in annual revenue and be under the age of 40 at the time. So I was. Again, this goes back 20 or so years. And I went to this thing as a as a as an entrepreneur. And we heard from all the great sort of business thought leaders at the time. Jack Stack talked about employee ownership and Pat lanchoni was just starting out. He's the guy behind the five dysfunctions of a team. And 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 we heard from this one entrepreneur named Richard Watkins, I think that's his name. And he came in. And we, I can never forget, we were in like an amphitheater style seating, right? 60 of us all kind of looking down at the pit at him. And he came in and he said, okay, first, first thing he said out of the gate, he's like, how many of you guys are involved in selling and marketing your product or service? And like, you wouldn't believe all of our hands went in the air, like the five-year-olds at, at, you know at, at, at the first day of class, like, pick me, pick me, like all of us, right? Hands in the air. And he's like, all right, put your hands down. And he said, look, you've all got the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. You should hire salespeople to sell your product. You need to sell your company. You need Mm -hmm. to save and invest all of those resources, the way you sell your and position your product and start thinking about your product as your company. That's when you're going to get Many millions of dollars, hopefully, in your return for your time invested, not when you sell your product. And I think so many entrepreneurs, we 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 will spend hours pouring over click funnels and our brochure and our website and all the things that the way, you know, the side of the vans, how what color we're we gonna make the vans, all that stuff, all the marketing stuff. Yet when it comes to selling our business, we hand it to a broker and say, you know, just get the best of what you can for it. And here's my PL. Hmm. It's there is a, a a real art to selling a company, and and first and foremost, it's about positioning your company, and it's the marketing story you tell about it, and that's why the best business owners and their advisors, brokers, and M&A professionals, they will create a 25-page sim, which is effectively a sales document. That when an acquirer looks at that, they should be booking their first flight on a to come see you. Right? It should be yeah. that compelling. And and I've never forgotten that speech at MIT and just how uh, how those skills that I had been focused on how to sell a customer I should really reorient about how do you how do you sell and market my business and make it more valuable.
0: Well, it's interesting because you know when 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 I was going through my broker training, um, I was Ed Pendarvis, the guy who founded Sunbelt Business Brokers. He he basically said you know that business. It's like a piece of inventory on your shelf. If you want to think about the business broker store, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and so it all has to do with uh, making the, the most attractive, best packaged thing. So that when somebody walks in that store, they're going to say, that's the one I want. Right? Yeah. John, how, um, how can people find you now? Is, is, is uh, your show the easiest way to tune in and learn more?
1: Just head to builttosell.com. If you go there, uh, top right hand side of the screen, there's a little button that says free gifts. If you opt in there, we'll send you the nine subscription model worksheets, uh, the art of selling your business workbook, uh, the eight drivers of company value. It's all free. So just built to com, and then uh, just click on the button free gifts.
0: Awesome. And uh, another comment here from Ryan Do you teach support new acquirers? Ryan, yes, I do. Just head over to businessbuyeradvantage.com and you can uh, you can learn more about that. And um, and Derek says that I'm really good at it too. So you <laughs> Thank awesome. you very much, Derek. It's highly appreciated. For, for those of you that are tuned in live or if you're watching the recording afterwards, please hit the like button. It really helps the YouTube algorithm uh, let people know that this is a, a great video to watch and uh john i want to say a big thank you to uh to spending some time with us today i know that uh, the, the people love to be able to have access and, and hear the stories and and talk to people who've who've been through this stuff and have seen as as much as uh, as people like yourself have
1: cool thanks for having me david it's fun
0: all right and with that we'll say see you later everyone and uh oh i've got a look i even i have to play this we'll see you later guys So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me, learn how I work with my clients. You can learn about my books, courses that I prepared for you. You can also find out all about how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, etc. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest.